Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. When we recorded the episode you're about to hear, Floris Rulofsson was postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for Logic, Language, and Computation in Amsterdam. But I'm very pleased to announce that uh, he has since been promoted and is now assistant professor of logic and semantics at the Institute for Logic, Language, and Computation. Congratulations, Floris. Now on to the show. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Amsterdam. With me today are Jeroen Ronendijk, Professor of Philosophy of Language at the Institute for Logic, Language, and Computation at the University of Amsterdam, and Floris Rulofsson, Postdoctoral Fellow, also at the Institute for Logic, Language, and Computation, and they are here to talk with me about inquisitive semantics. Jeroen Ronendijk and Floris Rulofsson, Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So Inquisitive Semantics is a new research program that the two of you and others have been developing that takes as its starting point some classic work on the semantics of questions in the languages that people speak. So what is it that a question means, as opposed to a flat declarative statement? Maybe we could start off by talking about the difference between like a yes-no question or a like who, what, where, when, how type question. Yeah, so as you say, Inquisitive Semantics is a, a project in semantics which is concerned especially with the semantics of inquisitive constructions in language. And among those are, of course, questions, yes-no questions and WH uh, questions like where is met. And traditionally in semantics, the focus is more on declarative constructions which contrast with inquisitive ones in that they declare something about a certain state of affairs, like Matt is here. And people have been thinking about the meaning of such declarative statements in terms of truth conditions. So the, the traditional idea in formal semantics is that you know the meaning of a sentence if you know under what conditions that sentence is true. This is a reasonable way of thinking about the meaning of sentences if you focus on declarative statements because those statements are true or false in given a certain situation. And indeed, if you know the meaning of that uh, statement, then you know in which circumstances it's true and in which circumstances it's false. But if you think about, for instance, a question or other inquisitive type of sentences, then it does not make sense anymore to think, at least not primarily, about the meaning of such sentences in terms of truth conditions, because a question like, is Matt home, or where is Matt, is not true or false in a given situation. So this requires a really a new notion of meaning, and that's the central aim of, uh, of this new research program. Okay, so to take an example... If I say, Madison is the capital of Wisconsin, what's the meaning of that sentence? Well, it's whatever it would take for the sentence to be true. So for the sentence to be true in the world, you know, Madison actually has to be the capital of Wisconsin. So what it is to know what that sentence means, to know 
how the world has to be arranged, what has to be the case in the world in order to make the sentence true. But it seems like that picture kind of breaks down if you try to apply it to questions for the reason you just stated, because, yeah, where is Matt? Well, it's not like you can say that's either true or false. It's not like somebody could say, where is Matt? And another person could shout out, you're lying or something like it doesn't even make sense. This seems like a real puzzle here. So, you know, what is it that a question means? Well, one thing to think about the meaning of questions is as something that should at least capture when the question is answered satisfactorily. So if the meaning of a declarative statement lies in its truth conditions, so you know the meaning of a declarative statement when you know when it's true and when it's false, uh, one basic idea about the meaning of questions is that you know the meaning of a question if you know what counts as an answer to that question, what counts as a satisfying, fully resolving answer to that question. And then usually, of course, there is more than one way to resolve the question. That's, I think, also important about questions. You typically have different alternative ways of uh, resolving the question. And for the yes-no question, that's basically two ways of doing it. So if the question is, is Matt in Amsterdam right now? Then there is the answer, yes, he is in Amsterdam right now. And there's the answer, no, he's not in Amsterdam right now. So to know the the, the meaning of a yes-no question, that would mean that you know under what circumstances you say yes and under what circumstances you say no. But other questions like, where is Matt at this moment? The range of resolutions of that question is not restricted to two options, yes or no. There are as many options to answer that question truly as there are places where Matt could possibly be, say, uh, cities uh, in the world or something like that. So in that case, knowing what the meaning of a where question is, is to know under what circumstances you would give which particular answer to that question. What we've arrived at now is what many people would think of as like the standard approach to questions, the standard semantics for questions. And there are various ways of explaining this technically, formally, with you know, different theories, with different details. But you know, the gist of it is that the meaning of a question is the set of all the correct answers to it. Now, that's not, of course, to say that when you ask a question, you're, that's the same thing as stating all the answers. But as we've been saying, it's just to say that to understand what a question means, you have to understand what it would be to give a good answer to it. One idea that has played a central role in both philosophy and linguistics over the past century or so is the idea of a proposition. What is a proposition exactly? Well, basically, it's the technical term for what is the content, the meaning of a sentence. So the proposition is the thing that corresponds to the meaning of a sentence, or the proposition expressed by a certain sentence, that's the thing that corresponds to its meaning. So there is a standard way of making that a bit more explicit, say a bit more about it, and that is to say that the proposition, in the most basic case, and that's sort of the traditional notion of what a proposition is in logic and philosophy of language, is that it is the set of worlds in which the sentence is true. So we already saw that assertions the declarative sentences are true or false, and that to know what it means is to know under what circumstances it is true or false. So then it comes natural to associate the meaning, the proposition that the sentence expresses, is the worlds in which it is true, or the circumstances in which it is true or false. The notion of a possible world is a technical notion, 
primitive technical notion. So it corresponds with the idea there is an actual world, the way things really are. But there are also alternative ways in which the uh, things could have been. And the meaning of a sentence tells you for all these possible circumstances whether it is true or false in them. So technically it's the set of worlds where a sentence is true. That's the classical notion of what a proposition is. You know, intuitively a proposition is maybe something like the information conveyed by a statement or the content of the statement or the meaning of a statement. We identified that with the truth conditions of a statement and the truth conditions are the way the world has to be in order for the proposition to be true. And then what we've just alluded to now is something that's come up uh, one or two times before in the podcast called possible world semantics. That's sort of a way of representing in kind of abstract form the information contained in a claim as all the possible circumstances, all the possible ways a world might be such that the claim is true. So you say that the, you know, what does Matt is in Amsterdam mean? Well, that's just the set of all the possible circumstances in which it is the case that Matt is in Amsterdam. When I say Matt is in Amsterdam and somebody understands me, what they understand is that the world is some one of those many different ways. This way of representing the information in a claim, it turns out is also useful for saying something about what it is to make a claim and what you've changed vis-a-vis you and the person you're talking to when you make the claim. How does that go exactly? Indeed. So the very basic idea of a proposition is as a formal object capturing the truth conditions of a sentence, but it's closely connected to a slightly different conception, namely of the meaning of a sentence as something that tells you how the information that is available in a conversation changes when that sentence is uttered. How the context, say, in which a sentence is uttered changes, is enriched, is enhanced by the utterance of that sentence. So if you think about the information available at a certain point in a conversation, as also being captured by a set of possible worlds, namely all the possible worlds that may, at that point of the conversation, may be the actual world. So there is this one actual world, but at uh, any point in a conversation, the people who are talking consider a number of possibilities, a number of ways the world may be. They don't know exactly which is the actual way the world is. And all those possible ways the world may be, given the information that is available at that point, are the set of worlds that determine, uh, reflect the information that is available. Now, if a sentence is uttered, an assertion is uttered, then the proposition expressed by that sentence, again, a set of possible worlds, determines what, according to that sentence, are the remaining candidates for the actual world. So, If, in a conversation, we have a set of possible worlds as candidates for the actual world, and then someone utters a sentence expressing a proposition, again, a set of possible worlds, then that utterance changes the information available by taking out, eliminating those worlds that were still possible candidates before the sentence was uttered, but not anymore afterwards, because they were not in the proposition expressed by the sentence. So this is how 
this classical idea of a proposition as a um, set of possible worlds capturing its truth conditions is also connected or determines the effect of uttering that sentence in a conversation. So this is the dynamic view on meaning. Meaning as the potential to change the information available. Okay, you're right. So this is the picture of basically human conversation made popular by Robert Stolnicker in the 70s, according to which, you know, when I talk to you, we're kind of like contributing to this collective pot of information. I say something that you didn't know, and then you learn it, and now we both know it. And you say something that I didn't know, and then I learn it, and now we both know it. So we have this like collective pot of information. And what's in that pot? Well, it's all the different ways the world might be that are consistent with everything we've said so far. So once you have this picture of you know, what a claim is as a set of possible situations, the situation in which the claim is true, that then allows you to think of what it means to make a claim, namely what it is to make a claim, is to take all the situations in which that claim is not true out of this collective pot of information that you and I have been putting together. So, you know, for example, if you and I are talking and I say, um, Jeroen isn't coming to work today, the effect of that is we take all the circumstances out of our collective pool of information in which Jeroen was coming to work today out. We, we, you know, we shave those off. So what you're doing when you make a claim is you're subtracting from the number of possibilities you're cons- that are on the table that you're both considering together. Okay, and then this is sometimes called a dynamic as opposed to the static conception of meaning because on the static conception of meaning, the meaning of a sentence is just a bunch of information, whereas on the dynamic conception of meaning, the meaning of a sentence is its potential to make changes in conversations. It's potential to have certain conversational effects. So the thing is, this notion of a proposition that we've been talking about as being a set of possible worlds That seems actually pretty different from what we started off with. What we started off with was the idea that the meaning of a question is the set of all the good answers to it. So does this mean that flat factual assertions and questions have just a totally different sort of meaning? Well, I think the first thing to do is if you take this dynamic picture, then look at, but what would the question do relative to such a context or the possible worlds that we all consider still possible? Take again a yes-no question, like, is Matt in Amsterdam uh, today? Of course, that's not going to eliminate any possibilities uh, from the context, right? Because it's not declaring anything, it's not asserting anything, it's rather asking for something. But still, relative to the picture of this information in the context of the conversation, you can look upon a yes-no question as something that divides the set of worlds that are still possible according to the information into two specific subsets, two specific ways in which the information could grow. One in which we add to it the information that Matt is indeed in Amsterdam, and one in which we add to it the information that Matt is not in Amsterdam. So if you model it like that, so you start from the set of worlds that are still possible in the conversation, that could be the actual one. What does a question do in that situation? Well, it draws attention to two particular ways of enhancing the context, of enhancing the available information. And sort of the conversational effect of it is that it proposes to the other participant or participants in the conversation to make a choice, of course depending on their own information, as to whether we go in this direction or whether we go in that direction. And in general, if you have a WH question, like where is Matt today, then you would have as many possible enhancements as there are possible places 
where met could be and you ask your participants to make a choice between some of these. Actually, this proposal part is also already there if you're really talking about assertions. Because, of course, if someone just makes an assertion, it doesn't mean automatically that the other participants in the conversation are going to accept that and put that in the context. But to really get it into the context as established by the conversation, the other participants should accept the information that is provided. But with a question, it's not just a proposal to accept, but it's a proposal to make a further enhancement of the information that is already present in the context. Yeah, so to illustrate this point, if I say something, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to just agree with it and believe me. You know, they could, I could say, Floris is in Amsterdam, and uh, you might respond by saying, no, that's impossible. I just got off the phone with him, and you know, he's in China or something. So there actually is, yeah, maybe more of a commonality between making an assertion and asking a question than we might have thought. So in both cases, a proposal to make a change in the kind of common pool of information shared by everybody talking is made. And it's just that the nature of the proposal is different in both cases. So in the case of an assertion, the proposal is that we all agree to accept this as true information or something like that. And in the case of a question, the proposal is that, look, I'm lacking this information. Will somebody please fill it in? Will somebody please <laughs> make one of these assertions? You know, I don't know which one, but the true one. So what we've set up until now is fairly well accepted by linguists and philosophers of language and logicians. But in the inquisitive semantic framework that you're developing, there's something new. Namely, you have proposed that some of the things we say are a little bit like questions and a little bit like assertions. They're kind of in the middle, and you call them hybrid propositions. Uh, so what's a hybrid proposition? So the idea of a hybrid proposition or hybrid sentences is that um, these are cases where there is both an informative and an inquisitive component to the meaning of a sentence. And therefore, we also need propositions, so these formal objects capturing meanings, which are hybrid, which capture both informative and inquisitive content at the same time. And you can think of a sentence like, I left my key somewhere as both uh, being informative, although typically in a trivial way, because of course you left your key somewhere, it's not really putting groundbreaking news into the conversation. Actually, what it's mostly used for, typically a sentence like this, is to invite other participants to help remind where I put my keys. So it raises this issue, and in this sense it is inquisitive. I left my keys somewhere, provides the information that I left my keys somewhere, often typically trivial piece of information, and then it raises the issue of where I left my keys. So this is a declarative sentence, it's not an interrogative sentence, like where did I leave my keys? It's a declarative sentence, but it does raise an issue that other participants are invited to help resolve. And the, the special feature of this sentence is that it has what is called an indefinite noun phrase somewhere. And this category of indefinite noun phrases, things like someone, somewhere, something, etc. Another construction that can be used to raise issues, even in declarative sentences, is disjunction. Disjunction is the word uh, or in English. 
Uh, with the word or, you can present typically two or maybe three, a small number of alternatives and invite other people to choose between these alternatives. Whereas with these indefinites like somewhere or someone, you introduce a whole range of alternatives. So this is comparable again to the yes, no question where you present just two alternatives and the WH question like where is met, where you present a whole range of alternatives. So in the same sense, these indefinites, like I leave my keys somewhere, present this open range of alternatives, whereas I left my key in the drawer or on the toilet, present these two specific alternatives, but still invite other people to help choose. Now on the I left my key somewhere example, why wouldn't we instead say something like, you know, what I literally said was I asserted something, I told you, my keys are somewhere, and maybe I kind of implied, oh, by the way, it'd be great if you could tell me where they were. Because it seems like what you want to say is that, like what I literally said, sort of has both of these dimensions to it. I both informed you of something and prompted you to give me information. But isn't the questiony part of, I left my keys somewhere, kind of just implied? That is certainly a, a way to think about I mean, in any case, that is implied. So this um, invitation to other participants to help choose is something that is implied. But it's a matter of uh, ambition, basically. So the semantics, you could, as a semanticist, say, well, that's just beyond what my meanings are intended to capture. But you could also say, well, I want to go beyond what my classical meanings can capture, and I want to enrich my notion, my formal notion of meaning a little bit and indeed capture these type of implications as well. There are also linguistic reasons for, I think, really saying that say this or, or with these uh, indefinites like somewhere. It's not just a matter of things that are implicated, but that it really is sort of at the heart of the meaning of the construction of a disjunction and of uh, indefinites at some deep logical level that has to do with inquisitiveness. And the linguistic reason for that is that there are many languages where questions or interrogative sentences use indefinites to make, like, who questions in English, which is not really obviously indefinite. And disjunction is used, for example, to make yes-no questions. So you would typically say, to ask the question, is John at home? You would say something like, John is at home, or John is not at home. So you use a disjunction between a sentence and its negation to express a question. So. The idea that inquisitiveness is a core feature of disjunction and indefinites corresponds to the fact that there are many languages that use typically disjunction or, or at least elements that look a lot like disjunction or indefinites or again things that look like indefinites to express these type of questions. Another reason to treat, for instance, this word or disjunction as bringing in an inquisitive component does not come directly from considering these specific sentences like my keys are in the drawer or in the car, but rather from looking at these type of words, words like or and 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 if a then b. So these are connectives, words that are used to put two sentences together and which in doing so, at a semantic level, also puts two meanings together. So they construct 
out of the two meanings of their constituents, a one, say, more complex meaning. So they put two meanings together and result in a, another meaning. And these words can be used to put declarative statements together. So Matt is in Amsterdam and Josh is in Berlin. But they can also be used to put two sentences together, like where is Matt and where is Josh? And also with if then, if Josh is in Amsterdam, then where is Matt? Or, and you can also use the word or for all these. So you can put together statements and questions with these words. And as a semanticist, you would then like to understand what in general is the contribution of these words to the meaning of these complex sentences. So how in general do they put two meanings together? And from that perspective, you or we have also ended up with um, a framework in which disjunction or and also these indefinites or existentials are sources of inquisitiveness. They put two meanings together and typically give rise to a new meaning which is inquisitive. One particular strength of the theory of inquisitive semantics is that it has something to tell us about the meaning of what are called conditional questions. We've mentioned a couple examples of them so far. So things like, if Matt goes to the party, will Floris also go? How does that work exactly? What, you know, what exactly am I saying when I ask a conditional question? I think the best way to try and find an answer to your question is to see what are the answers to the conditional question. So if Matt goes to the party, will Floris also go? There are basically two sort of standard answers to that. Yes. If Matt goes, then Flores goes as well. And no, if Matt goes, then Flores doesn't go. So those are the, the two uh, standard answers to conditional questions. Uh, that seems obvious enough. It's a bit like a yes-no question. I mean, you actually use yes or no. You could only use yes or no to answer those questions. Now, partly we have to tell a little bit of a historical story. Because so there is a picture of questions that was sort of popular, especially uh, among logical semanticists, about questions that is difficult to apply to conditional questions. And the reason is this, so the, the typical picture is that what a question does is that it divides the context or information into possibilities that exclude each other. So mutually exclusive possibilities, like a yes and a no answer to a question like, is Matt at home? The cases where he is and the cases where he is not, they divide the whole space into two disjoint uh, bits. And so the whole conception of questions, the whole earlier conception of questions that inquisitive semantics partly reacted upon, is that the question always has this feature that it divides a space into possibilities that exclude each other. Now, that's a nice picture, but uh, it's different if you consider uh, the answer yes and no to a conditional question, because they do not really exclude each other. So, at least sort of in the standard logical perspective, if you have, if John goes, then Bill goes as well. If John goes, then Bill does not go. These two propositions are not contradictory because they are both true in a situation where John doesn't go. So, I mean, it's a bit of a technical story, but sort of the, the point is that to get the right formal picture of a conditional question, you need to have that there are possible answers that uh, do not exclude each other, that in principle are mutually compatible. 
And that was from the old conception that just didn't fit that pattern. So they never dealt with these rather simple constructions like conditional questions because it didn't fit the picture. So you've been using this framework to account for all sorts of phenomena. And another phenomenon you're interested in is disjunctive questions. So questions with the word or in them. How are the ideas that we've been discussing useful for explaining the meaning of those questions? Yes, so disjunctive questions have been uh, also a big challenge for theories of questions. And that's for a a number of reasons, actually, and all of them are are interesting. Some specifically for us because of the framework in which we're working and others for independent reasons. Uh, One of the interesting aspects of disjunctive questions, so a disjunctive question would be something like, does Matt speak English or French? And one of the interesting aspects of those type of questions is that the, their meaning depends very much on intonation. So there are many different ways in which you can pronounce this question, but two of them are um, perhaps most typical. So imagine a context in which we need someone who speaks either English or French, it doesn't matter, but he needs to speak one of those two languages. And then I'm thinking of you and I ask, oh, does Matt speak English or French? Then someone would answer by saying either yes or no. And that would mean, yes, Matt speaks one of those two languages, or no, Matt doesn't speak either. But now if we're in a different situation, and uh, I remember that you were either from England or from France, I can't remember, but now I I have to write something to you and I want to be sure that you understand. So I want to know, do you speak English or French? Now I ask with a different intonation, does Matt speak English or French? And now somebody else doesn't answer by saying yes or no, but this time really has to pick one of those two languages, one of the two alternatives that I brought in and say either Matt speaks English or Matt speaks French. So the wording of those two questions is exactly the same and the order in which the words appear is exactly the same. The only difference is the intonation pattern and apparently that intonation pattern uh, makes a very significant semantic contribution. This is of course often the case but here it's a very crisp and clear example. So it's an area where there is a lot of input needed from phonologists, people studying intonation, and semanticists, people studying meaning, and in particular, um, so we've been working with the phonologist, and we've provided the semantic um, input. This has led to uh, interesting new ideas about these constructions. And inquisitive semantics in particular is useful because it both puts at center stage this notion of inquisitiveness and provides this principled notion of meaning that uh, has this inquisitive component, so it's useful to analyze the meaning of questions. And at the same time, it has uh, this new perspective on disjunction as a source of inquisitiveness, actually, as a, something that introduces alternatives. And those two things together make this framework particularly suitable to use in pursuing an account of these disjunctive questions. 
So one last question for people who are interested in reading more about inquisitive semantics, where can they go to learn more about it? Yeah, so this is an ongoing project and we're, there's lots of things being written, lots of people at this point contributing and um, having new ideas. And there is a website where we post uh, papers and uh, resources that can be used for doing research in this area or learning more about it. And the website is www.illc.uva.nl slash inquisitive-semantics. So that's ILLC for Institute for Logic, Language and Computation, dot UVA, that's University of Amsterdam, dot NL slash inquisitive-semantics. Jeroen Ronendijk and Floris Willowson, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N dot uchicago dot E-D-U slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. 